Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Palestinians defending their land from expanding Israeli ethnic cleansing and risking jail, torture, and expulsion in the process. Also, can space tourism coexist with all of space being turned into a war zone. We'll speak to Professor Carl Grossman about that, who's warning us that uh, there could be some major problems with nukes in space. And uh, a lot more. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We come to you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network here in the Bay Area. It's KPFA, the People's Radio Station. Well, uh, good to have you along with us. And it's good to welcome for the first time to this broadcast, Charlotte Kates, uh, she's the international coordinator of the Semidun Palestinian Prisoner Solidarity Network. Uh, she also works with Al Adwa. Uh, that's the Palestinian Right to Return Coalition. Uh, she's working um, with them uh, along uh, to create a uh, a webinar. We're going to tell you about that. That's happening on Sunday. Uh, Charlotte Kates, welcome uh, to Flashpoints. Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you today. Well, uh, it is good to have you with us. Now, uh, a lot of people don't know the ins and outs of uh, what's going on at the moment in East Jerusalem, uh, in occupied Palestine. Uh, they don't. There's not a lot of information. It's one of the most censored stories of our time in terms of the expanding uh, ethnic cleansing uh, in occupied Palestine. And this is a story in which that is at the heart uh, of the matter. So um, why don't you start with telling us something about Sumeya Falah uh, and what is happening to her, because I think it, it it's a cell of the story that tells the whole story. Thank you so much, um, and thanks to Flashpoints for always uh, raising these stories about Palestine that often don't get covered in much of the corporate media. Um, Sumeya Falah is a Palestinian PhD student, a researcher, an activist. Um, she's a, a Palestinian from occupied Palestine 48. That means she's a Palestinian citizen of Israel. And, and a lot of times when we're talking about Palestine, we're talking about Palestinians who are living under uh, direct military occupation in the West Bank or in the Gaza Strip under siege or in Jerusalem, or Palestinians in exile and diaspora who have been denied their right to return for, for 73 years. But Palestinians like Sumaya have been living under a system of settler colonialism and systematic apartheid and uh, really theft of, of land and identity uh, for, for 73 years since the Nakba, since 1948. And, and Samaya is someone who, as a researcher in environmental science and a, PhD, and a PhD student in environmental science, has centered a lot of her work on the kind of damage that Israeli colonial environmental policies have done inside occupied Palestine. So like right now when we're talking about the Nakab, 
this is actually a policy that's being of land theft. It's being called a policy of planting trees in order to kind of greenwash the reality. Um, things like the Israeli fertilizer industry, energy industry have been based on the um, exploitation of indigenous Palestinian resources and really the destruction of uh, indigenous agriculture and, and economy that have existed long before the Israeli occupation in Palestine. So this is what she does as part of her studies uh, from a scientific perspective. But now she's being held under house arrest inside her house, denied access to the internet, denied access to her mobile phone because she attended a conference of Palestinians called the Masarbadil, the Alternative Palestinian Path Conference in Madrid last November. And Israel is calling her participation in this conference a potential threat and connection with a foreign agent. And those foreign agents are other Palestinians from elsewhere in Palestine and Palestinians who have been denied their right to return to their own homeland for the past 73 years. So this is um, a particularly kind of compelling term because what we're seeing is the colonial power labeling the indigenous people of the land foreign agents and then forcing other Palestinians to be locked in their homes and held under house arrest and prohibited from doing even their, their academic work in a meaningful manner because they're connecting with one another. We're speaking with Charlotte uh, L. Kate's, uh, we're talking about, uh, well, um, really, it's it's about ethnic cleansing. It's about uh, the purging of Palestinians from their land. It's all rights taken away either inside Israel or outside. Um, these are not good times uh, for um, those who believe that um, <laughs> Palestinians need uh, have the right to be liberated, have their own country, their own way of life. This is... Uh, it, it is a very, very much a censored story. So um, one of the ways, though, we really evaluate uh, this kind of story is it is, is she just, uh, if you will, a dangerous thorn in the side of uh, the ethnic cleansers? Or is there a pattern and practice of purging Palestinians uh, from their land, Palestinians who've uh, been where they've where they are for you know you can almost say forever. Uh, is this is this the way it is now? Is this policy of the new Israel supported by the United States? Well, this is a really important question because the kind of charges that Samaya specifically is facing, these accusations of communicating with a foreign agent being used to refer to Palestinians speaking with one another about their cause and their rights and their future, uh, in just the past several years, there have been multiple cases of prominent activists, uh, many of whom are Palestinian citizens of Israel. And we see representatives of the Israeli occupation go to the United Nations, um, speak from their embassy in the United States, and say that, oh, Israel is, is a democratic state. In fact, to make the even more ludicrous claim that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, when in reality what we see is that that is not a democracy that implies to the indigenous people of the land. That is the Palestinian people, those who are on the land and those who have been expelled from the land and denied their right to return. So Muhammad 
last year was subjected to this. Um, also in 2020, uh, Majd and Ward and Kyle were also subjected to the exact same policy. And since May 2021, there was, I mean, I think people who, who listen to flashpoints probably know that in May 2021, there was what was called the unity uprising throughout occupied Palestine, where Palestinians in 48, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Jerusalem, were fighting back against land confiscation. And when the bombs were falling on Gaza, um, you know, there was kind of more attention and more visibility. But this fight against land confiscation and land theft is happening on a daily basis throughout occupied Palestine. Um, and so Samaya's work, her her research, as well as her activism, um, both present the so-called threat to uh, the Zionist project or the Israeli occupation regime that is exposing its fundamental illegitimacy and deeply undemocratic nature. Um, these kinds of cases have led to the launch of electronic campaigns called Mutawasilun, which means we will continue to connect where Palestinians in diaspora and exile and Palestinians um, inside Palestine publicly reaffirm Hello? I think we'll just... You know, you you have to back up because we lost you for about 30 seconds. Oh, dear. Um, so just to say that there was an electronic campaign called Mutuasalun, yes. which means we will continue to connect. And this is a campaign that was launched and that brought people together, Palestinians inside Palestine and in exile and diaspora, to say that their right to communicate about a free Palestinian future without colonization, Zionism, occupation and oppression would not be denied. And as a result... We've seen um, these charges pushed back, even as uh, thousands of Palestinians inside uh, the West Bank, inside occupied Palestine 48, inside uh, Jerusalem have been arrested, interrogated, imprisoned, or subject to house arrest since this unity uprising in May of this year. This is an attempt to try to crack down on this growing unity that has been created among Palestinians, or I should not say a growing unity, but a reality of unity that has not been destroyed despite 73 years of colonization. This is an attempt to crack down on the assertion and the visibility of that unity um, through social media, through electronic platforms and otherwise. But on the ground, Palestinians are continuing to fight back um, against the policies of the Israeli state, against the policies of, of the so-called Jewish National Fund or the JNF, like we're seeing right now happening in Anakop. Um What are the, just back up and focus on the case for a moment, what are the potential outcomes of the case? Um, and the timing here, why is Israel doing it, doing it now? Sure, well, in Samaya's case, Israel brought her case into the media because they actually want to use it as a way of, of intimidating not just her, but other Palestinian students and other Palestinians in occupied Palestine 48, that this is a dangerous path to follow, that if you connect with Palestinians outside, you could face these same kind of repercussions. You could lose your academic future. You could lose your job. Um, you could be threatened by right-wing forces that might attack you because there are 
um, as we saw very visibly in, in May and June of this year, right-wing mobs going into Palestinian businesses and smashing them up um, as a form of racist attack on the Palestinian people. So this case has been um, magnified kind of and sensationalized to say that, oh, she could there could be a major security offense. She could be imprisoned. And this is an order to terrorize Palestinians who have already been living under colonialism for 73 years. In reality, Samaya's lawyer has read everything that has been submitted and made it quite clear that there's absolutely nothing here except for Palestinians communicating with each other about student organizing inside Palestine and outside Palestine and talking together as Palestinians about their politics, their identity, and their culture with one another. Um, it should be noted that the arrest of Samaya came one day before the organization that she works with was organizing a vigil in support of Palestinian hunger striker Hisham Abu Hawash, and right before um, the alternative Palestinian path that we were talking about earlier announced a uh, transnational Palestinian student conference that will be taking place in Brussels in uh, November of 2022. So this is clearly a political attack, an attempt to thwart all of these kinds of organizing. But by organizing more loudly and more clearly and building pressure, we can fight back against this, especially as we know that Israel is dependent on the $3.8 billion in U.S. military aid, actually even larger amount now that it receives every year on a daily basis. Now, also... It can be very dangerous. It can be lethal to resist. Um, people have already died. So I, uh, um, it definitely puts her life on the line in this kind of resistance movement. Uh, are there other leaders who are under attack, who have been brutalized? You talked about uh, uh, the right-wing Israelis going into shops. I don't imagine they were punished for what they did. What, what, what are the physical dangers uh, to the people who are resisting now? Well, every when Palestinians go to protest, go to organize, um, sometimes there is a difference in tactics and the kind of repression that is used. Um, we've seen the Palestinians, Palestinian Bedouins who are defending their land in the Nakab have been uh, have been hit with tear gas, have been attacked, have been rounded up. We've seen the photos and videos of 12-year-old girls being dragged and thrown into police jeeps. We've seen hundreds of people arrested simply for defending their land and protecting their land against the bulldozers being sent by the JNF. Um, of course, there are 4,650 Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli jails, including 500 who are held without charge or trial under administrative detention. And unfortunately, on an almost daily basis, we hear the story of another life taken, another martyr in Palestine whose life was taken by the systematic policies of killing and execution of the Israeli occupation. Sometimes these are leaders who are targeted for assassination. And sometimes these are Palestinians going about their lives. Um, so, you know, we saw a, a Palestinian going to a medical clinic who was killed just yesterday because the Israeli occupation forces shot tear gas in a medical clinic. Um, and of course, where there are medically vulnerable people, 
causing him to lose his life. We saw um, an elderly Palestinian-American, um, Omar Assad, who was taken from his car in the middle of the night, um, roughed up by Israeli occupation forces, beaten. When he became unconscious, he was left alone in, a, in, a, in an abandoned space where he had a heart attack and was left to die without medical aid. Um, and this is a, a U.S. citizen, a Palestinian U.S. citizen, an elderly 80-year-old man whose life was taken simply for being a Palestinian driving down the street. Now, that's, of course, in addition to the direct policies of assassination of um, the, the massive bombings that we've seen time and time again directed at Gaza, this incredible cruelty and brutality of the occupation that's all being carried out with U.S.-made and funded weaponry. Um, it, it's really a, a testament to the will and commitment of the Palestinian people to their land that despite all of this brutality, the resistance continues and in fact grows despite over 73 years of massacres, bombings, killings, and assassinations. That's by the strongest imperialist forces in the world. Now, and uh, one thing that always seems to remain bipartisan is uh, U.S. support for this kind of Israeli ethnic cleansing policy. It, 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 it was... Um, Interesting, uh, with the death of, uh, the tragic death of, uh, Bishop Des Desmond Tutu, uh, everybody was reminded that uh, one of the most powerful advocates outside of, uh, Palestine for, against, uh, Israel's ethnic cleansing was Bishop Desmond Tutu, and, uh, nobody really liked to talk, uh, about that. Uh, but it is, it remains very difficult, uh, Charlotte Gates, to get people to have a real understanding of what it means to be able for a settler to be able to sort of move into somebody's backyard or really sort of build a house on top of um, Palestinians who have been living in the same land for, you know, generations. The, 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 this is not a, a picture that is clear uh, in the American mind. And this is a struggle, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, this is a picture that is deliberately obscured that we see by um, the, the imperialist political parties, by the Democrats and Republicans, and, and certainly by corporate media um, in the United States, which, you know, does not hesitate to promote war propaganda whenever that's suitable for the interests of defense contractors and the military industry. Um, but hides the reality that Palestinians have been facing and confronting for over 73 years. It's actually um, very interesting to see, like in May of 2021, in the mass demonstrations that were taking place in almost every city in the world, that despite this tremendous amount of misinformation and misdirection, that people in the United States and elsewhere around the world have been receiving for all of this time, that there was this massive recognition on the part of people who march against police violence and for racial justice, on the part of people who fight against oppression and inequality and exploitation here on this land, who recognize that 
the United States and Canada were have been constructed as settler colonial societies on indigenous land, that um, Palestine is a freedom struggle that everyone who cares about justice and liberation should and must support, especially in the United States, where the U.S. is directly involved in and responsible for all of these ongoing crimes. And of course, um, as in the case of Desmond Tutu, there is a, a very long history in in the global south of seeing Palestine as part and parcel of the anti-imperialist struggle, as part and parcel of fighting back against colonialism and injustice. And so that's why, you know, every year we see at the United Nations, time and time again, efforts to pursue justice and accountability for Palestinians by countries of the global south are repeatedly thwarted and vetoed by the United States sitting in the Security Council. Um, uh, there's a I, growing... Sorry. Go on, please. Go on, go on. Go on. I'm saying there's, there's growing recognition that and growing support for efforts like the movement to boycott Israel, to divest from companies that are profiting from the ongoing occupation and colonization in Palestine, and, and a growing recognition among younger generations, even those who identify with voting Democrat, for example, that... You know, supporting Israel and supporting the Israeli occupation is just supporting colonialism, racism, oppression. It's supporting everything that anyone who cares about social justice is fundamentally opposed to. And more and more people are seeing that reality, despite the censorship of big tech companies waged against Palestinian news outlets and journalists. More and more people are confronting that reality when using and looking at alternatives to corporate media. And this is presents a real problem for the defenders of the occupation in the United States. I want to um, uh, let you give information about the webinar, but before we do, very briefly, um, we know that students uh, inside and outside of uh, Palestine have been um, uh, deeply engaged in resisting uh, this kind of policy, and they have um, been effective. They've also paid the price. Um, could you uh, talk about what they students deal with when they organize? What happens? What are the uh, uh, what are the multiple struggles? I guess I could put it that way. Absolutely. Well, then I mean, when we talk about the case of someone like Sumaya, someone who's facing house arrest, she's not just facing house arrest as an activist, but also as a student who's engaged in real Palestinian research on the environment and the land. And when we look at, say, Palestinian students in the West Bank in Jerusalem, there are currently hundreds of imprisoned Palestinian university students on an almost weekly basis. There's a report of um, armed occupation forces invading Palestinian universities, shooting at students, um, using live ammunition, leaving the blood of students on the ground of the university. And students are routinely arrested 
and charged with being a member of an illegal organization. And when they talk about being a member of an illegal organization, they're actually talking about student activities and student blocks on campus. So Palestinian students have been locked up for participating in demonstrations and even book fairs and falafel sales at their university campuses. And this is standard operating procedure of the Israeli occupation. Now, of course, Palestinian students outside, as well as supporters of Palestine, are also organizing. There's a tremendous... uh, There's been tremendous work done by Students for Justice in Palestine, Students for Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights, and other campus-based Palestine organizations um, in the United States and Canada and Europe and elsewhere. And what we see here are these uh, organizations, many of which work directly with the Israeli embassy and with the Israeli government, that um, use, you know, uh, slanderous websites and personal attacks against students, um, particularly Palestinians, in an attempt to essentially terrorize people out of express out of engaging in political and social expression for the rights of Palestinians to be free. And of course, we've seen this on many occasions um, in, in the Bay Area as well. We've seen repeated attacks, for example, against the General Union of Palestine students at SFSU and elsewhere. Um, these kinds of attacks are not really separate from the imprisonment of Palestinian students or taking Palestinian students and throwing them in administrative detention without charge or trial. It might not be possible to do that exact thing to Palestinian students in the United States as well as supporters of Palestine. But it is possible to engage in, you know, a systematic policy of kind of like character assassination and targeting. And so it's really important to defend the rights of Palestinian students to be free from house arrest, to be free from interrogation, to be free from imprisonment, and to be free from this kind of systematic state-backed attack attempting to uh, wall off the future of Palestinian society. Okay, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I want to tell our uh, the mothership that um, we're going to this segment's going to break at five thirty. Um, and uh, Charlotte Cates, we want to hear from you uh, about this webinar. There's a webinar planned. People uh, really need to know a lot more about what's going on, uh, and that's been a problem: the lack of knowledge, the amount of censorship. Um, this is a, an attempt to really uh, expand people's knowledge. Tell us about uh, uh, this webinar, what's uh, being planned. I believe it's for Sunday. Absolutely. Well, this weekend, um, across the country and around the world, many people um, are organizing actions to stand up for Palestine. There's a car caravan taking place in the Bay Area. And on Sunday, January 30th, out of the Palestine Right to Return Coalition, is having a webinar where people can hear live from Palestinians who are confronting the terror of the JNF and Israeli occupation forces um, to defend their land in Anaka. We'll be hearing from Rafa Abu Aish and Leila Al-Sana, who are a Palestinian land defender and a social worker in Anaka. And they'll be speaking about exactly what the so-called Jewish National Fund, the JNF, 
has been doing for generations in Al-Nakab is continuing to do today and how people around the world and in the United States can get involved in supporting their struggle and in supporting the Palestinian struggle. To find out more about the webinar or register, this will be Sunday, January 30th, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, you can go to alauda.org. That's A-L hyphen A-W-D-A dot org to register for the webinar. And if you'd like to find out more about Samaya's case and how you can get involved in supporting that, um, you can visit the Sami Dune website at S-A-M-I-D-O-U-N, Sami Dune, uh, dot net. Now, um, before we let you go, I want to turn it personal on you. What's What's at the heart of the matter for you? What's the driving force? What has you so deeply engaged in this struggle? Struggle. What does it mean for you? You know, I uh, I was born as, and raised as a U.S. citizen, and the reality is is that the United States, the country that you know we pay tax dollars to, um, the country that we have a responsibility to stop. The crimes that U.S. imperialism is involved in and in Palestine, um, this has been a central flashpoint, as in the name of the show, for U.S. imperialism for decades upon decades upon decades. Everywhere that there is a protest for justice, whether it's people fighting um, for workers' rights, whether it's people fighting for racial justice, whether it's people fighting for national liberation, you will see a Palestinian flag there. And Wherever you see alliances of fascist forces, the far right, the extreme right, the enemies of the people, you will see um, Zionist forces and the Israeli occupation there. So, you know, as someone who is committed to social justice, to having a society um, that is free of exploitation and injustice, to then standing with the Palestinian people and standing with the Palestinian cause is absolutely essential to achieving that goal and to seeing a future where we really can speak about a society based on human dignity without exploitation and without injustice. And liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea, liberation of political prisoners, and victory for the Palestinian people and their resistance is an absolutely essential step toward achieving um, that goal, which I think is really vital and crucial to all of us and to our future society and to our survival as humanity and as a planet. Thank you for joining us on Flashpoints today. I think um, uh, people will appreciate getting a, a bit of a different perspective on that whole story of what's going on there. Something has to give because underlying all of it is the fact that Israel is a nuclear renegade, thanks to the United States, uh, and they have who knows, 200, 500, 700, whatever. Uh, when one thinks about the Israelis threatening to bomb the Iranians uh, just to make sure they don't have a nuclear reactor, one uh, sort of gets the sense that there's a big contradiction in this world that needs to be dealt with. Uh, we are going to leave it right there. We thank you for joining us. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, we also have not stopped thinking about Julian Assange.
Julian Assange is still running in a high security prison in uh, Great Britain. Uh, the the folks there are threatening to send him to the United States. The United States will put him in jail until he's dead. And uh, this does not bode well for free spe- free speech, free journalism. Uh, Julian Assange is all of us when it comes to journalism. Yeah. That's a fact. Even those, 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 those expensive attorneys for the New York Times say what happens to Assange can happen to any New York Times reporter. You hear that, folks? We wrote a song for Julian Assange. I did, along with my good brother, Francisco Herrera, uh, and... Um, We're going to once again play that for you and remember that Julian Assange uh, needs to be free. journalist, I saw that we could achieve a lot of reform with a little bit of work. In some cases, one classified video can possibly stop a war. A military chopper opens fire. Instruments of genocide. WikiLeaks unmask the lie. By central command, gunsight video nails the murder scene down. Julian told the truth about the war machine. It's getting late in the hour. Don't wait another minute to speak truth to power. And you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We are delighted, delighted to welcome back Carl Grossman, professor of journalism at State University of New York College at Old Westbury, has been writing about the dangers of nuclear weapons, nuclear war for Let's just say a few years, uh, and maybe we've been getting all together doing this stuff, Call Grossman, but I'm always glad uh, that you're watching what's going on. Now, um, you're saying that there might be a little bit of a problem uh, between a little conflict between space tourism uh, and uh, the all of space uh, being turned into a uh, war zone. So please explain where we are now in that uh, uh, cycle of weaponry and weapons in space. A pleasure, I suppose, though. It's, it's a really horrible subject considering uh, the push to to weaponize space. Uh, Trump's space force, which Biden has accepted, no rollback. 
Meanwhile, there's this this other push to turn space into um, uh, a place of space tourism. Uh, these billionaires, Jeff Bezos and Branson and Elon Musk, um, uh, that's their uh, their goal. And uh, I'll be giving a, a talk actually at uh, it's an Indian law school. It's the West Bengal National University of Judicial Sciences. And it tomorrow is holding a conference on space tourism, legal dimensions, and my uh, my presentation is about this uh, this clash between uh, uh, turning space into a uh, a, a tourist area and uh, turning space into a war zone, and how they conflict. And the bottom line here is that if the U.S. moves ahead, as it's uh, it's doing right now, to uh, to weaponize space with this uh, with this space force. I mean, in my uh, presentation, I talk about uh, oh uh, the development of offensive weapons, which are being um, deployed by the the space force. Uh, uh, I, I get into various kinds. Of weapons, and um, uh, I quote a, a bunch of experts about what the consequences would be if there would be a shooting war in space involving uh, uh, the, these weapons. And uh, the consequences are enormous. You'd have so much debris that uh, you wouldn't be able to, with a rocket, get up and out. Uh, from Earth, uh, it, it would be a, a disaster, uh, and um, this all—we're uh, talking about the the push to turn space into a war zone—comes in complete contradiction with a, 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 a visionary and such an important treaty. It's called the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, and what it does is to set aside space for peaceful purposes uh, and uh, as part of the Outer Space Treaty, which the United States, indeed, the former Soviet Union and the United Kingdom put together. It's, it's been ratified by uh, country after country. Uh, what it does is ban, ban weapons of mass destruction, but the U.S. with these, uh, these other kinds of weapons it would like to put up into space, laser weapons, hypervelocity guns, and particle beams, things that I can get around that. So there's been a, an effort um, actually led by our neighbor Canada and Russia and China to expand the Outer Space Treaty with what's called the Paros Treaty, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space, which would prohibit any weapons in space. It would indeed keep space for peace. The problem is that there's a consensus process at the United Nations to get this Paros Treaty passed. And uh, guess what country says no? Time And I've been at the United Nations and watched this. No to this. So it's, it's, it's not happened. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, with what the United States is doing, uh, we can expect that uh, Russia and China are going to uh, to meet us in kind, and they're also going to go up there in space uh, with uh, with armaments, with weapons, again heading us to an inevitable war in space. So, 
that's the story. It's it's a horrible story in the sense that to uh, to turn the heavens into a war zone. I mean, terrible enough we have wars on this planet, but to extend war up into space, uh, and again to uh, actually in the end block the ability of uh, space to be explored. I mean, if there's any uh, Trekkies out there listening, uh, this will, uh, you know, make uh, the exploration of space to go where people have not gone before and so forth impossible. Uh, We need to, I think, keep space for peace. We need the Paros Treaty. We have to turn around U.S. policy. We have to uh, negotiate and, through diplomacy, extend the Outer Space Treaty. We're speaking with Professor Carl Grossman. Uh, he is going to be a guest over the weekend to um, at a conference uh, dealing with these kinds of issues. Um, it, it, it is amazing to me, Carl, uh, that, you know, many of us thought this was like another phenomenal idiotic, wasted idea by Donald Trump just to pump up his own uh, ego. But here you have Biden coming in and taking it very seriously. Do we need another branch of the military? Or is this because the United States has a very special vision of the future, which is full dominance in space, which is to control, for instance, we know what the po- the policy is when it comes to China. It's the pivot. It's surrounding China by land, air, sea, and space, and uh, containing China that way. So where are we? Uh, this is of a piece, isn't it? Well, uh, let, let me use some of what Trump said when he, this goes back to 2018, when he advocated for a U.S. Space Force, he said it's not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. I mean, this one country, the United States, would dominate space. Following year, he signed the National Defense Authorization Act of 2020, establishing this Space Force as the sixth branch of U.S. Armed Forces and, he, his forces, and he said, space is the world's newest warfighting domain. And the Space Force, Trump said, would help the U.S. catch this, control the ultimate high ground. And then at an unveiling at the White House of a Space Force flag, Trump said, space is going to be the future, both in terms of defense and offense, and so importantly and so disappointingly, uh, Biden does not roll back on the U.S. space forces. And several Democratic members of the House of Representatives, this is last year, introduced the No Militarization of Space Act, which would abolish the U.S. space force. And the the prime author of the uh, the legislation was out in your in, in, in your territory. U.S. Representative Jared Huffman of California, he called the Space Force costly and unnecessary. And I'm just reading his statement here. The longstanding neutrality of space has fostered a competitive, non-militarized age of exploration 
every nation and generation has valued since the first days of space travel. But since its creation under the former Trump administration, the Space Force has threatened longstanding peace and flagrantly wasted billions of taxpayers' dollars. It's time we turn our attention back to where it belongs, addressing urgent domestic and international priorities like battling COVID, climate change, and growing economic equality. And like, what happened? The measure got nowhere. Not surprising, considering that most Democrats in the House of Representatives and the Senate and nearly all the Republicans voted for that National Defense Authorization Act of 2020, providing for the Space Forces formation. So where that leaves us is uh, the need, uh, and, and change has always come through grassroots action, the need for grassroots action. Uh, I, I'm on the board of advisors of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Uh, indeed, I helped form it back back in 92 in Washington, D.C. Uh, it holds uh, actions through the, through the world. It's a global network through the world. Uh, just go to that website of the Global Network, www.space, the numeral for peace.org. Uh, it, it's the leading international organization trying to keep uh, space for peace. It, it's at the grassroots, and that's what needs to happen. Here in the United States, people have to know about this push to weaponize space, and it is not on the front page of the L.A. Times or the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune. It's something that's happening, but uh, and lots of money is, as they say, going to uh, nearly $20 billion this year. That's the budget of the Space Force. U.S. Air Force bases are being renamed U.S. Space Force bases. As I mentioned before, all kind of new space weaponry is being developed by the the space force it's 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 moving ahead people have to learn about it know about it i've written many articles just got a counterpunch uh also it's out of california an excellent website and I, i've written repeatedly about uh uh, the push to turn space into a war zone and about the space force and i would just urge listeners to connect with with the global network against weapons and nuclear power in space. Carl, tell us again what the atomic clock is from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and of what concern is it as we say they're getting very close to midnight? Um, these kinds of policies that you've been talking about um, are... You know, we're, uh, we remember Ukraine, Russia, 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 the United States. Um, let's have some more imperialistic, uh, saber rattling. Uh, everybody's on hair trigger now, Carl. What, why are the atomic, uh, assigned the people who, uh, control the clock, uh, sort of looking for another, they, they've run out of room. Uh, and midnight means uh, nuclear war. So what's up? Well, it, it's uh, the clock, the doomsday clock, was put together by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. 
Uh, it was uh, set up originally in 1947. 19, in, in 2020, now over two years ago, the doomsday clock was moved 100 seconds to midnight. Midnight being nuclear annihilation. I mean, this is what the, these nuclear scientists term it. Nuclear annihilation, doomsday, an apocalypse. This is the closest it's been to midnight uh, since 1947. Uh, 2021, last year, it was kept at 100 seconds to midnight. And now in 2020, just two weeks ago, the Bolton of Atomic Scientists said we're keeping it at 100 seconds to midnight because nuclear annihilation is, is so close. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Europe, the Ukraine. I mean, here I have a piece. Uh, this is uh, from last month uh, from Reuters. Russia says it may be forced to deploy mid-range nuclear missiles in Europe. Uh, here's a piece. Uh, 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 the, this is from The Guardian, the British publication. The U.S. must avoid war with China over Taiwan at all costs. And it speaks about in a conflict over Taiwan with China, we could stumble into nuclear war. Indeed, just this morning, on uh, I was impressed on the morning edition with uh, Steve Inskeep on um, NPR, uh, he does an interview with the China, um, Chinese ambassador to the U.S. who's warning of military conflict, in quotes, with China over the future status of Taiwan. So we have a, a, a number of real potential conflict, big conflicts in the making. And, uh, well, it, instead of moving to outlaw nuclear weapons, period, uh, the United States has been moving to um, uh, to modernize its arsenal, and, and in fact, uh, and, and this is so important, passed at the UN in nineteen in two thousand and seventeen was the uh, a, a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. It's also called the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. It was open for signatures in 2017. It's been signed country after country. It was to enter into force last week, January 22nd. Uh, it was supposed to enter into, uh, into force. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not been entered into, the for, into force. Instead, uh, we're moving ahead, the United States, with bigger and uh, more powerful Weaponry. I, I mean, here, this is the national interest. Talks about uh, Ohio class submarines. Uh, each of the, I'm reading from the story, each of the 170 meter long vessels can carry 24 Trident II submarine launched ballistic missiles, which can be fired from underwater to strike at targets more than 7,000 miles away. As a Trident re-enters the atmosphere at speeds up to Mach 24, it splits into up to eight independent re-entry vehicles. I'm not talking about <coughs> these, these uh, ICBMs with multiple warheads these days, and, and, and enormously more powerful 
than the Hiroshima bomb. A full salvo, says this article, from an Ohio-class submarine, which can be launched in less than a one minute, the full salvo, can unleash up to 192, 192 nuclear warheads to wipe 24 cities off the map. This is a nightmarish weapon of the apocalypse. I mean, people have to get involved, and there's some important groups attempting to, an organization, grassroots organizations, uh, trying to uh, to abolish nuclear weapons. Well, what has to happen with nuclear weapons, in my judgment, is we must do the same thing that was done after World War One with chemical weapons. When it was realized how horrific chemical weapons are, there were a number of treaties in the 1920s banning the use of chemical weapons. And it's, it's, that's not held 100%, but it's, it's pretty much put the chemical weapon genie back in the bottle. We have to put the nuclear genie back in the bottle. We have to understand that uh, I mean, this, this, nuclear war, it's unwinnable. It's, 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 it's suicidal. It's, it's, it's insane. And uh, we have to use our noggins before... Because those nuclear ICBMs are not just on submarines. Submarines are used because they'd be difficult to locate. This is the theory. But there are silos, particularly in the middle of this country, uh, in the Dakotas, uh, with uh, soldiers sitting there in front of a control panel with a button to push the button and send off an ICBM at Beijing or or Moscow, and, and the reverse is also true. And then we have that have, have, have our our bombers, the B one, the B two, and so forth, ready to to, uh, to scramble to get up there and to drop nuclear weapons. I mean, this is why the uh, the doomsday clock of the bulletin of atomic scientists is at a hundred seconds now, a hundred seconds to midnight. And when we have to rise up, we have to. From the grassroots, uh, do something about it to depend on, I mean, in, in terms of the uh, uh, the modernization of uh, our nuclear, the U.S. nuclear arsenal. I mean, it begins actually under Obama. It continued uh, under Trump. I mean, Trump, what did he say at one point? We have nuclear weapons. Why don't we use them? This dumbbell said. And now with well, Biden, well, I, if, I, if I could just better. jump in for a second, Carl, I'm sorry. I sure. just want to let people know you're listening to Professor Carl Grossman on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Um, you know, the 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 use and creation of nuclear weapons, as you're pointing out, is an insane policy. It's insane for so many reasons, the fact that we can destroy ourselves many times over. Um, but it, it, it is a policy that is sustained by Trump. It's sustained by Biden. Nobody is questioning it. And it is a fact now that we're doing the Ukraine dance again, that when these kind of issues come up, both sides put their, it is true, right, that both sides go up one notch on the hair trigger um, uh, launch on command thing uh, so that we are in much more danger than we were even three months ago. 
Well, you know, it, it's in my my generation. I grew up in the fifties, and at PS one thirty six in Queens, uh, we had dog tags. Uh, the, the kids, the, the New York Department of Education distributed uh, well over a million dog tags to school children. So, uh, in the wake of a nuclear war. They'd be able to identify uh, younger victims. Us uh, at that, you know, during during that period, with duck and cover was, uh, we would duck and cover under our desk. Sometimes we'd go out into the hall. Doctor Strangelove was uh, the, uh, the Stanley Kubrick movie was made in that period, and I mean, people were very aware of uh, of, of doomsday, nuclear doomsday. I, I've been to Russia. I've, I've given presentations in Russia uh, and um, spoken to folks there, uh, kind of my contemporaries. And I, I remember sport, uh, taking a walk with a uh, after a, a, a lecture uh, uh, where the person had been to it, talking about uh, how he couldn't sleep, fearing that the United States would would bomb. Then it was the Soviet Union, the, the, the fear they live, lived with. But these days, um, uh, there, there's not. I mean, I, I teach college, and my students, I say, Doctor Strangelove, how many of your students have seen it? And and I get, uh, you know, blank stares. And uh, there's no dog tags to kind of emblematically, with a piece of metal, uh, kind of document. Uh, Doomsday, the the, put, uh, the the consequences of doomsday. I would suggest, in terms of understanding the time we're living at and now, is is the, this wet, great uh, movie by Leo, Leo DiCaprio, "Don't Look Up," which actually kind of, um, I mean, he's a big anti climate change person, uh, anti nuclear person, and he's done this movie. Uh, just to kind of uh, dramatically portray uh, the attitude here. If anybody doesn't know the plot of this movie, it's it's an incredible. It's the Doctor Strange love movie of our time. A comet is coming towards the Earth, uh, but the uh, attitude. We, we is, don't uh, we don't want to give it away, but um, uh, we will also well, look call. Up. Listen, um, we've got 15 seconds, so if people want to follow your work, what's the best way to to keep an eye on what you're saying, what you're doing, Carl? Very quickly. Just go to my website, uh, Carl Grossman, one word, carlgrossman.com. Uh, follow me on Facebook and uh, log into Counterpunch. You'll see my pieces uh, uh, on Counterpunch, also on Nation of Change. All right, beautiful. We always appreciate your visits, Professor Carl Grossman. And uh, come back soon. Please stay safe. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, and we are gone. Have a nice weekend. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akeel. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.